So will you take your Bible, please, and turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 11. We are back in the Gospel of John. If you're new with us this morning or relatively new, uh, we've been slowly working our way through the Gospel of John, and we're nearing the midpoint and we come to the, um, to the last portion of chapter 11. We're just picking up where we left off. And so we come to the last portion of chapter 11. We're going to begin at verse 45, and I'll read through verse 54. Jesus, of course, to give you a little context, Jesus um, has uh, raised Lazarus from the dead. That has just happened. So verse 44 Ends with Lazarus coming out from the tomb and Jesus uh, uh, telling everyone to unbind him from the grave clothes. And we pick it up in verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. And so from that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word this morning and for the time we have in it. We pray that you will uh, help us, allow us, Free us to hear it, to receive it, and to become doers of it. Would you change our lives by it? And indeed, Lord, open our eyes to see the wonder of your will and way for us. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. One question often asked by people of all kinds, believers and unbelievers alike, concerns the existence of evil in a world created and sustained by God. If God is all-knowing, 
and all-powerful, the question goes. If he is love, then why is evil so prevalent? How does God, being all good, all good, how does he allow evil in the world? And not only how does he allow it, but how do we make sense of it? What do we make of the evil that happens to us and around us? And how do these things coincide with God's good purposes for us? Basically, how does this ever-present tension between good and evil work under the canopy of the sovereignty of God? Well, the basic answer, of course, is rooted in our human rebellion against God. The presence of evil does not Oh, to a lack of goodness on God's part, but to the abundance of sin on ours. There are consequences to the fall, and those consequences are still felt uh, today. The wonder, therefore, is not that evil exists, but that God and His purposes always prevail. Even when it seems that evil has the upper hand, God is working in unseen ways to overcome evil with good. And I bring this up because we see this very thing taking place in the passage before us this morning. And we return to, the, to our study in the Gospel of John. We do come again to this 11th chapter, which does record for us the death of a man named Lazarus and the sure hope of life in Christ as Jesus miraculously raised Lazarus from the dead. And though the story begins in grief, it ends in glory. It begins in sickness and death, but it ends in life with God. And this is a sign to us, we're told. The death and resurrection of Lazarus signals in a very real way, the death and resurrection of Christ. John, in his gospel, has included many miracles that Jesus did, signs, as he calls them, in order to show that Jesus is, in fact, the Christ, the Son of God and Savior of the world, so that we might believe in Jesus and have life in his name. But not everyone responds in this way. Some oppose Jesus, as we see today. And the opposition to, to Christ is intensifying. Not everyone is pleased with Him. Not everyone celebrates His goodness and glory. Not everyone honors Him as they should. Instead, they oppose Him even to the point of plotting His death. As an act of pure evil... They plot against the Lord and plan to kill the Lord. Pure evil. And yet by God's sovereign grace, the very thing they intend for evil will break the power of evil forevermore. For in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God triumphs over evil in every way, for all time. And the takeaway for us is simply this 
Because God has overcome the greatest evil with the greatest good, we can be sure, sure, that He is indeed working all things for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And so let's consider the plot, the paradox, and the purpose of God. So we might expect people, the people here, respond to Jesus in vastly different ways. Verse 45 says that many of those who saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead believed in him. They were there at the tomb and knew that Lazarus had been dead for four days. They were grieving with Mary, presumably with Martha also. They saw and heard Jesus call Lazarus from the grave, and thus they witnessed the power of Christ firsthand, his power over death, his power to impart new life. And they believed They believed in Him, notice. Not just in the miracle itself. Their belief moved beyond the miracle to the miracle maker. Everything here in the text suggests that they placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Others, however, refused to believe. It's not that they couldn't but they wouldn't. They witnessed the same miracle. They saw the same power. Right before their very eyes, they too saw Jesus raise a dead man to new life. Yet even that was not enough for them. Something held them back. Maybe it was skepticism or cynicism. Maybe some of these People in verse 46 are the same people we read about in verse 37 who had faulted Jesus for not coming to Lazarus sooner. The skeptic, the cynic, always finds fault in that which should inspire faith. And so instead of praising God and placing faith in Christ, they reported Jesus to the authorities. And this hardness of heart and refusal to believe continues in verse 47 and following. Having heard what Jesus did, the Pharisees got with the chief priests and they gathered the Sanhedrin or the Jewish council for an impromptu meeting. The Sanhedrin existed under the jurisdiction of the Romans and was the highest Jewish court in the land. In a sense, the Supreme Court as far as the Jews were concerned. And so this gathering of the council was no small thing. Rather, this is a pivotal meeting of high-level authorities who were frustrated and utterly fed up with Christ. Consisting of about 70 members, the Sanhedrin was composed of two main groups. The Pharisees were the religious party, while the Sadducees weren't particularly religious unless it benefited them uh, politically. The Pharisees generally disliked the Romans, 
while the Sadducees often collaborated with the Romans, meaning that these two groups were often at odds with each other, but on this occasion they found a common enemy in Christ. The Pharisees opposed Jesus because he was exposing their sin and hypocrisy, while the Sadducees opposed Jesus because he was a threat to their political ambitions. What are we to do with this Jesus, they voice in verse 47. He performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So the concern of the council is that Jesus is gaining momentum. Their strategy of confronting Christ and Uh, confronting him publicly and discrediting him before the people was proving fruitless. To the contrary, his teaching and his many miracles were winning people to faith. More and more people. There was this groundswell of support from among the people for Jesus. And if the Romans got word of it, they thought, if the Romans perceived Christ to be a threat, surely their response would be swift and decisive. Essentially, then, the, the council is just saying, look, if we allow Jesus to continue... Not only will we lose the people, we will lose our power as well. We'll lose our authority over the Jews, and the Romans will crush us, and our nation will be no more. Sanhedrin's debating about what to do with Jesus. They're likely discussing all the options And then Caiaphas stands up. Caiaphas, the high priest, leader of the council, he just cuts to the chase and comes to decision. He's grown tired of ideas that were getting them nowhere or that were only temporary solutions at best, and so he blurts out, you know nothing at all. And then he proposed the one thing that in his estimation would rid them of Jesus forever. Don't you understand, he schemed, don't you understand that it's better for you, for all of you, that Jesus should die instead of us. It's better that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And with that, the die was cast. The discussion was over. Whatever other options were on the table had been overruled. Verse 53 says that from that day on, they all made plans to put Jesus to death. With purely evil intent, they resolved and agreed that Jesus was to be sacrificed on their behalf. But what the Apostle John wants us to know is that the schemes of man cannot derail the saving purposes of God. 
Caiaphas had just schemed the murder of Jesus Christ. It is malicious and wicked and entirely unjust. There is nothing in Christ, nothing he did that warranted such evil. Quite the opposite, right? He had just demonstrated the glory of God by raising a man from the dead. He had brought comfort and hope to a family in deep despair. He had given new life to all who believe. And what does he get in response a sentence of death. Caiaphas and the whole Sanhedrin turned against him and began plotting his death. But John, John pulls back the curtain and reveals what God is doing behind the scenes. Verses 51 and 52, look at it. John says that Caiaphas was unwittingly prophesying to the purposes of God. He didn't know it, of course, but John includes this brief commentary to clue us in on what God was accomplishing. Yes, indeed, Jesus would die for the nation, he says, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. John wants us to know that what the Sanhedrin meant for evil, and it was evil on their part, God meant for good. It is divine paradox. God had a greater plan in the death of Christ, one that was at work behind the scenes. The Sanhedrin feared the growing effect that Jesus was having among the people. They, they, they plotted his death, little knowing that the very thing they were plotting would prosper the cause of Christ exponentially. They were upset because Jesus had raised a man from the dead, but little did they know that he would do something soon, that he would, do, he would soon do something even more miraculous. Little did they know that God in his sovereignty, hear this, was using their opposition to bring about the greatest miracle of all time, the death and resurrection of Christ. The very thing they thought was best for them, in fact, was best for us all. They were thinking with evil motives, but God overcame their evil with good. Not that God caused their evil, never. We are each accountable for our own sin, so God didn't cause their evil. Instead, He set a sovereign and divine course that at this point in time ran parallel to theirs, but with obviously different intentions and outcomes. It's like Joseph and his brothers. You know the story. Jealous and bitter, his brothers sold Joseph to a band of Midianite traders who in turn sold him to Egypt years past. And Joseph rose and fell and rose again. God exalted him to second in command in all of Egypt. And then a famine hit the land and, and his brothers, thinking Joseph was long dead, came seeking food. 
unexpectedly, they reunited with their brother. And you remember what Joseph said. They were distraught, his brothers. They were overcome with grief. And Joseph said to them, listen, you sold me, but God sent me. And then he was even more clear when he said, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good so that many people would be kept alive. You see, this is a true, this reality is a true game changer in how we view the tension between good and evil in the world. In perfect wisdom and power and in perfect love, God's purposes are such that not even the vilest evil can set them off course. Not even in the slightest. God never has to regroup. He's never caught off guard. And this is why we know that for those who love God, all things do work together for good for those who are called according to, those, to His purpose. This is why we know that if God is for us, who can be against us? This is why we know that nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not even the most wicked wickedness can stay God's hand nor separate us from His glorious work of love and redemption. This is the love and wisdom and power of sovereign God. Maybe you're despairing this morning. Run to God. Respond favorably to his divine activity in your life, some of which you cannot see, but some of which is taking place even now as he is speaking to you and with you through his word. Remember that he is God and that none of his good purposes for you can be thwarted. None of his good purposes for you can be thwarted. He is sovereign over all. He rules above all. And He has set a divine course that will come to pass. Neither the schemes of sinful man nor even Satan himself can hold back this freight train of God's redemptive work in the world. And the assurance of this, the quintessential example of this, is nothing less than the death of Jesus Christ. In the most evil way possible, Caiaphas thought Jesus would make the perfect substitute. Either Jesus dies or we all die, he suggested. It's him or us. But as John explains, God had a much deeper design. Yes, Christ would die. He would die as the perfect substitute, but not in the way Caiaphas imagined. No, no, not at all. God's design in the death of Christ was not just to stave off religious or political pressure, but to save people from sin and death. 
to new life, new and everlasting life with God. Jesus died in the place of sinners and bore the just punishment our sins deserve. He substituted himself for us. He atoned for our sins so that we can be forgiven and free to enjoy full relationship with God because sin destroys relationship and because we, being sinners, cannot mend the breach ourselves. Christ Jesus took upon himself our guilt and gives in return the grace of God. He who knew no sin became sin. He suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. Never has the world, never, never, never has the world experienced such love as when God gave his only son to be our substitute. Never will we experience such love as when we move out from under the wrath of God into the family of God. In our sins, the Bible says, we are children of wrath, but in Christ we are children of God. It says in verse 52 that Jesus died to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. And I want you to notice that not everyone is gathered not everyone is gathered. Only the children of God. Meaning, implying that not everyone is a child of God. Only the children of God are children of God. Only those who prize Christ, who prize Christ's death for them, are gathered. For the Bible teaches, it's very clear, to all, to, to any and all who receive him, Jesus, who believe in his name, to them he gives the right to become children of God. Children born, it says, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. So there's this, there's this receiving and believing on, on our part that supernaturally works with, with God's work in, in that we are born again by God himself. I think it's important that we know that, that Christ is sufficient to save the entire human race, but the effects of his atoning death are applied only to those who receive him and believe in his name. These are the ones for whom Jesus died. A.W. Pink says, Christ's great sacrifice was not offered to God at random or without definite design, he, did not, he, did, he died not simply to make salvation possible, but to make it certain. And it is certain for each and every child of God. And every child of God is gathered into one, it says, into one family, God's family. This includes some who are of Jewish heritage and as well as those who are non-Jewish, both Jew and Gentile. 
the effects of Christ's death extend to all God's children who are scattered abroad, not Israel only, but to the uttermost parts of the earth, people from every age and generation from different cultures and backgrounds are graciously gathered. God's work of salvation through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ stretches out to reach men and women of all ages. Even now, even today, God is seeking His children and saving them to Himself. He is gathering a great company of people and He is gifting them with eternal life. He forgives all their sins and welcomes them to Himself because of Jesus and His substitutionary death. God is their Heavenly Father and they, all who receive Christ and believe in His name, they become His beloved children forever. So really the only question is for you to think, and consider, and take seriously. Are you a child of God? And indeed you are, if and only if you trust and follow Christ. You see, there are three types of people, I think, represented in this passage. And it's helpful, maybe, for us to consider, which one am I? Are you one who opposes the Lord? Like those of the Sanhedrin. I doubt we have many that fall in this class here among us this morning, although I have no clue what's going on in your heart. Are you more interested in your will and your way instead of God's will and God's way for you? Do you see Jesus as a threat to your way of life rather than the Lord of your life? Like the chief priests and Pharisees, are you scheming, strategizing a plan to effectively eliminate Christ from your life? And if so, if that's you, please understand that you are fighting a battle you cannot win. God always prevails. And your opposition to him, if that's you, is not only fruitless, but utterly foolish. It's interesting to me, just a quick aside, that Caiaphas and the others thought that killing Jesus would save their political skins and spare the nation, but the very events they feared came to pass anyway. Because in the aftermath of Christ's death and resurrection, the tension between the Jews and Romans grew. Eventually a war broke out and the Romans crushed the Jewish rebellion. The temple was destroyed and the Sanhedrin was no more. Meanwhile, Christianity flourished. 
And by the time that John uh, wrote this gospel, you know, they had tried to keep people from believing. But by the time that John wrote this gospel, there were Christians in every major city and in every country within the Roman Empire. So you cannot thwart God's purposes. You may oppose him, even inwardly you may oppose him, but you'll always come out on the losing side. Or maybe you aren't as outright or forthright in your opposition, but still you remain skeptical or cynical toward the Lord. Still you keep him at arm's reach. You hear of the effect that Jesus has on people. How he changes lives and you even see the power of Christ firsthand. You are like the people of verse 46 who were at the tomb with Mary. And you actually see, they actually saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. And and like them, you have friends or people you know who love and trust the Lord. And you see the obvious effect that Jesus is having on them. You see the newness of life and you can't deny it. It's plain for all to see, but your sin deceives you. Again, like the chief priests and Pharisees, they freely admit, you freely admit that Jesus is doing many miracles and that many are placing their faith in him, but you're trying to deny what is truly undeniable. For some strange reason, you keep looking for a catch. What's the catch with this Jesus? As if God has some ulterior motive to pull the wool over your eyes. You see the skeptic in you, the cynical side of you, it's keeping you from eternal life in Christ. And in the end, please hear this, You are no better off than those who outright oppose the Lord. Because you too are finding fault with the very thing that can lead you to faith. Or are you a person of faith? I suspect that many of us are. like those of verse 45 who've heard and and seen the person and power of Christ and we've gladly entrusted our life to him. No No one forced us. No one coerced us. Gladly. You know, so much of this passage is about those who responded negatively to Jesus, but But it's so important, we mustn't miss the fact that that many respond just as we would hope they would with faith. It says that many believed in Christ. Not a few, not a mere handful, not just some, but many, many who saw Jesus raise a man from the dead physically were likewise raised from the dead spiritually by placing their faith in Christ. They were given new life in his name by receiving and believing in Jesus. They became children of God. So which is it? 
Don't be like those who oppose the Lord or remain cynical toward the Lord. That is the way of death. Instead, receive Christ and rejoice in God. Believe in Christ and be gathered into the family of God. Savor and surrender to Christ and enjoy life with God. And then, part of this enjoyment of life with God, part of this life of faith that is in Christ is that we have this assurance. Remember, this is the takeaway. That because God has overcome the greatest evil, the sinister murder of Jesus Christ, because God has overcome the greatest evil with the greatest good, the substitutionary atonement of Christ, He is indeed working all things, all things, all things in your life as a child of God. He's working all things for the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for... Thank you for ministering to us this morning. Thank you for gathering your children. Thank you for the power of the gospel to save. Thank you for for this helpful reminder, this important truth that at one time we were all separated, estranged, lost in our sins, children of wrath, but by the grace of God, by the sovereign grace of God, you have gathered us to yourself and you call us sons and daughters. And I pray for those among us this morning or who hear these words, who may be opposing you outwardly or inwardly, who may remain skeptical or cynical and trying to keep you at arm's length, I pray that you will break their will. Set them free from the bondage of their will, that they may will the way of Christ. We ask it through his name. Amen.